Two weeks ago, when we gathered, we focused on how it was possible that the omnipotent, omnipresent, eternal God could be squished into a baby and still be deity, real human being and real deity. Last week, we looked at Paul's soaring declaration in Colossians about how absolute deity he was, how, how clearly portrayed Paul made it that he is the invisible, the image of the invisible God. He is truly God, that he is the firstborn of all creation. Today we are going to build really on Paul's exaltation of the Son of God as creator and see how that plays directly into his role as redeemer. Because you can't look at Christmas without understanding the cross there. Last week we dispelled the heresies about what image means and what firstborn means. No, it means plainly he is God and he is Lord. Paul also declared clearly in verses uh, 15 through 17 that he is, God the Son, is the creator of all things. What did he create? All things. In the heavens and on earth, all authorities and all realms. Paul explained the how and the why that all of creation was through him, all of creation was for him, all of creation was after him, and all of creation was by him. We cannot boast in our existence. Yes, we are. We breathe and we move, but it is all by His grace. In our culture today, we emphasized it last week, that personal autonomy is like the God of this age. What I decree, what I determine, that's what matters. What anybody else says, that doesn't matter. But we see we are created for Him, we are sustained by Him, and thereby we must submit our lives to Him. I am merely a steward. I am a manager. He is God. Now, I don't want us to miss this point. We go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul is declaring this, these facts, not merely as facts. He is declaring it to a people who now have eyes to see these truths. People who were once blind. He's announcing it to a free people. People who were once bound in their sin and condemned to die. He's sharing it with children. I mean that metaphorically. Children who have been adopted into a family, children who were once orphaned, who had no family, but were adopted into not just a family, but into the family of God. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords is Abba Father. Christ is our brother. It's extraordinary. 
Last week, Paul pointed the spotlight. Imagine on a stage. He pointed a spotlight on God the Son so that they could see the glories of God the Son as Creator. Today he's going to turn on another spotlight. And we are going to see the fullness of Christ as Redeemer as it flows out from that. Let's together submit our hearts and minds to the Scripture that is before us. Let us submit our hearts and minds to our God and Savior that He would have His way in us this morning. Father, we do that very thing. Even now, we are, we are a people thankful that we have Your Word. We have Your declared truth before us. And Lord, apart from you opening our eyes, apart from the Holy Spirit stirring our souls to thirst, we have no taste for this. It bounces off our foreheads and rolls onto the floor. So even now, God, even for the saints, we beg and plead that you would allow your word to take root in us that you would be exalted and glorified in our lives through this word. For those who do not know you today, Lord, would you open up their eyes that they might see? Would you give them a new heart? Would you give them ears to hear your word this morning? Be glorified in your people in the proclaiming of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Right out of the gate... In verse 18, we see that He is the head of the body, the church. Christ, the Redeemer, is the head of the church. As I read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, also in Romans chapter 12, the book right before it, Paul references the church as the body. It is a very common metaphor uh, to use the body there. It's, it's a living entity. It's got various parts. Even you go down to an amoeba. You know, it's not much of a body. It doesn't, but it's got all kinds of various parts, and they're extraordinary parts. Scientists are just, you know, in our day and age, blown away by the complexities of a single cell organism, all the things working together to make it happen, to get this thing to ooze along in the pond to eat the things that amoeba eats. But the church, the body, is comprised of different parts, but it is a unity. It is an entity. You look around, you go, there's a bunch of people here. But we are a body. We are the body of Christ here on 8th and Travis. It plays out locally here, and about 100 yards up the street, and about 100 yards beyond that as well. And throughout the city, and throughout the country, Christ proclaiming, God-honoring churches. Where these bodies are assembled together, not by our choice. We think we, can, we think we came today because I chose to. God assembles the body as He sees fit. That's what it made plain in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He assembles 
the body as he chooses. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's gifted each one. With, he tells us here in Colossians 1, with Christ as the head. How important is the head? Well, in revolutionary France, they didn't cut off feet. They didn't put your hand in the guillotine. They might do that in Saudi Arabia for stealing. But if they want to end it, they put your head in the guillotine. We know this. Our heart beats because our brain is working. Our kidneys function because our brain is working. My hand clasps because my brain is telling it to do so. My lips move because the brain, the head is functioning. Christ is the director. From him, we take our lead. Where would I expect to find my marching orders in the church from the one who is the Word? In the Word. This is why a church must cling tenaciously to the Word. That is why Protestant churches during the Reformation were built upon the preaching and teaching of the Word. It must be preeminent. It must have first place. He is the head of the body, the church. Consider a symphony. A composer, who may also be a conductor, writes the score. Typically, in a moderate-sized orchestra, there are 14 different instruments. Plus the percussion sections. There's all kinds of different percussion. Woodwinds, brass, and strings. Some of the same instruments will be playing different parts within that symphony as he composes it. I, I can't even imagine doing this. They're guys way smarter than I musically that do these things. But after he writes this score or the symphony, he's got to assemble an orchestra. <clears throat> Typically, the orchestra consists of 50-some members. Everybody with different skill sets. If I want somebody who plays the violin, I need to seek out somebody who plays the violin well and bring him together. Now, if, if I play the violin and I'm brought into the orchestra, I don't play what I want to play. I'm really thinking this is like, you know, fire on the mountain. No, I'm supposed to play what the composer has written for me that is in front of me. I play at the behest and the service of the composer and conductor. It may be a hard piece, but that's what I'm called to play. It may be an easy piece, but that's what I'm called to play. And so I need to play for all I'm worth. 
First, first violin is out today. I'm second violinist. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to play first violin. Oh man, both, both of our violas are out today. I may have to play the viola. I don't like to play the viola. Guess what? I may have to play the viola, or the viola today. I'm a violinist. If one instrument fails, the other instruments have to fill in. They have to carry the tune for a time. What happens, though, if in looking at the score, the orchestra's gathered, and the trombones, they're dissatisfied with their part? We, we don't like this. Or they don't like how the trumpets are playing and the French horns are playing. That's too bad. It is at the behest and the direction of the conductor and the composer. What does he say? If he is well pleased with how they are playing, I should delight in that as well. So in the church. An orchestra is a beautiful depiction of the unity that should permeate the church. In the diversity with Christ as the head. I do what my Christ calls me to do. I may not like it. I may be filling in. That's okay. I do it at the joy of my conductor. But not only is Christ the head of the church, he goes on to say he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Here's that firstborn thing again. But before we get in, into that and unpack that, we see that Paul is once again looking at the preeminence of Christ. Not only is he preeminent within the creation, not that he is a creation, but he is before the creation. He is preeminent in the church. Understand this, without Christ, there is no church. Christ came to build his church. That's what he told the disciples. That's what he told Peter. And upon that rock, not Peter, him, upon this declaration, upon what he was about to do, the church would be built. Christ's purpose, God's purpose, is not merely to redeem individual saints for individual lives. That you might be an autonomous little island unto yourself. You were redeemed by Christ to be part of his church. Those who name the name of Christ but live opposed to the church, not submitted to the church, need to take a long, hard look at where they stand before Christ. Church isn't my idea. 
not my plan, not my purpose, but Christ is preparing for himself a bride. That is the church that he is going to present to himself. We're getting to that point. Moving on. He is the firstborn from the dead. We talked about firstborn as a place of leadership, but here he's actually using the term firstborn as in sequence. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first one resurrected unto eternal life. The first one resurrected by God the Father unto eternal life. You know, Lazarus was raised from the dead. He was to die again. He got to die twice. Swell. So we look to Christ as, as an example, as a kind. As he has been and as he is, so we too will be. He is the firstborn from the dead that in everything in the church, he's talking about in the church here, that in everything under him, he might be preeminent. Verse 19 goes on to declare also that he is God again. Paul emphasizes this again to the Colossians by making plain that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Christ, in humanity, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This wasn't, this, Jesus, God the, God the Son didn't go kicking and screaming into the carnation, into the incarnation. He was pleased to do it. He was pleased to take on humanity for the sake of redeeming humanity. He was God. No clearer declaration of Jesus' deity. And as such, as he is God, as he is the head of the church, his authority is unquestionable. But to what end? That through him, through God the Son incarnate, that he was pleased to do. That through him, that he would reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That idea of reconciling is restoring to harmony. There's almost a monetary idea of all the accounts are balanced. There, everything is square. Now, the debt was a debt we could not pay. He squared up a debt. He reconciled to himself a people who couldn't be reconciled. We were irreconcilable. Uh, a year ago last summer, we took a three-week vacation. And imagine a pipe broke in our home. It didn't, praise the Lord. But we got a call about two weeks in saying, um, this is the city of Wichita Falls, and uh, you've spent like uh, 550,000 gallons of water You've drained the lakes, and you now owe 
$550 million to pay for damages for all the properties around you and for the waste and for the fines. And we go, I got nothing. I got, I got no, I don't even have insurance for that. I mean, USAA would go, we don't know you. But the city goes, we're square, we took care of it. That's your tax money at work. Uh, but if, if they charged me nothing for it, they reconciled it, and they took care of the bill. And I go, I, I could never have done that. I couldn't have fixed it all. Oh, and they rebuilt my house, and they rebuilt, rebuilt the neighbor's house and restored the foundations. And you go, I, I can't do that. This is what God has done. God has reconciled the irreconcilable. Not just me, but you too. All of us. Restoring to harmony. Now, he didn't just make it right. He drew us to himself. He's reconciling to himself. This is extraordinary. Not only is the bill paid, but we get God. Not only is the debt of our sin paid, but we get adopted into the family. God. Best friend. Forever. There is no better thing. Think of the best meals you've ever had. Think of the most beautiful sunsets you've ever seen. Think of the most contented you've ever been. Think of the deepest sleep you've ever enjoyed. And amp that up by 500,000 times. And you still don't get what we get when we get God. God desires us. He didn't have to do any of this. He was under no compunction, no compulsion to do this. He desired us. He doesn't need us. But he desires that we would enjoy him and his glory. To this we have been created. To this we have been chosen. To this we have been called. What has he reconciled? Those things which needed reconciling. It says he reconciled uh, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That idea of reconciling is there's a rebellion going on. There was a rebellion. What did he reconcile? Those in rebellion. That's man. That's why he took on flesh to become a man. How did this peace come about? By the blood of the cross. Making peace. The implication of the word making peace means there's a war. Who's at war? We were. Against the living God. Again, this makes, this makes salvation all the more extraordinary. Because we were hostile to him. We were opposed to him. And he redeemed us to be his children. How? By the precious blood of Jesus Christ. By the blood of his cross. Paul doesn't leave it there. He goes on to, to flesh out this. 
to go, okay, we've gloried in God. Let's turn it back to us now. He goes, we are aliens no more. You are no longer a stranger or an alien. You who were once alienated and hostile. We were, if you are a believer, we were absolute foes of the living God. And don't delude yourself that you weren't. Consider where you might be today apart from God's grace in your life. He says you were hostile in your mind. You were doing evil deeds. Hollywood would turn that into graphic revulsion. But you know your life. You know how hostile your mind has been. You know the evil deeds that you have done. I look at some of you and I go, I can't imagine that. But you can. You can. And as saints, let us not delude ourselves that this battle doesn't still rage in our flesh. Paul wrote to the Galatians a few books earlier. He said in Galatians 5.17, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Romans 7 in a nutshell, in Galatians 5, 17. There's a war going on. And our bodies, our sinful nature desire the sensation of evil, but we are no longer powerless. No longer do we have to march in lockstep to a demonic commander who only desires our death and destruction. He has reconciled, verse 22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We're saved by a sacrifice. By that blood of the cross. To what end? To present you holy and blameless before him. He wants you as part of his church as part of the bride that he is going to present to himself holy and blameless without spot or blemish, he tells the Ephesians. He is the one who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. But, next verse, 23, if... Indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. If you continue, all right? I believe if you are a believer, you will persevere. Okay, to that end, I'm a a Calvinist. I believe that if you are a believer, you will 
Scripture makes plain, He who works in you is going to continue to work in you until the day of Christ. Okay? Ultimately to present you to Himself. He is going to work in you. He is at work in you. It says that. But it also says, if indeed you continue. None of you, I use this example, you don't have a salvation light bulb. Bing! It goes, okay, I'm saved. Good. I can rest. I can check out now because I'm saved. We are called to persevere. Well, I'm told I'm going to persevere. How are you going to persevere? By persevering. Okay, that sounds really circular, but that's what God's word makes plain. If indeed you continue in the faith. What faith? Gospel faith. Can you get saved by yourself? No, you were dead in your sin. Can you continue in your own strength? You can't. Here is the gospel. You can't. He did. I can't love my wife. In him I can. I can't train up my children. I'd be a miserable father. But in him, as I pursue him, as I am rightly ordered with him, as I seek his pleasure, he strengthens me. He empowers me. He guides me in his word to train up my children. I can't. Boom. Face plant. Face plant. After face plant. I mean, we're like toddlers. But as he guides us, we can and we do. That is the faith. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. You must stay stable. I used to play hockey. I was a defenseman. Okay? Had to have your legs apart when you were skating backwards. Okay? Stable platform. You see uh, safeties, free safeties and uh, cornerbacks. You know, they're running back with their legs apart. As soon as they start to cross over, try and stay stable and steadfast with your legs crossed. Anybody can push on you and knock you over. Good luck trying to knock somebody over if your legs are apart and squared. Stable and steadfast. You're not. You're moving. You flinched. Boom, he's going to go right around you. You're going to look silly. We have to stay on solid footing. We cannot shift from the hope of our future understanding of where we are going. We cannot shift. I cannot shift from my thinking that he can, I can't. I can't, he did. I can't shift from that. If I start going, well, now I, I, I got to take it myself. Lord, let me take that back and let me, no. My hope is in Christ alone. He is the hope of my salvation. He, all of this is founded on Christ. This is Paul's emphasis here to the Colossians. You were once alienated. Don't, don't falter from that hope. It's all founded upon Christ. He is our God. That's what he has declared. He is our Lord. He's our master and commander. He is our redeemer. He is the head of the church. He's not redeemed me in isolation. 
I am gifted through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not about me. It's about Him and His glory. It's about Him preparing a bride for Himself. I have to live this out. And I don't, have, I don't mean that negatively. I have to live this. No, I get to live this out in the church. Amongst you. My church. I live this out as the Holy Spirit has gifted me. You must in the church. You must exercise those gifts. If you have no idea how you are gifted in the church, talk to somebody who's, who, who, who understands that, who understands the spiritual gifts. Talk to Jeremy. Talk to myself. Talk to one of the deacons. That we would be exercising our gifts. Christ made us aliens no more. Peace on earth and mercy mild God and sinners reconciled. That's radical. Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi had a conversation this week. That didn't go so good. You can't imagine the skinheads and the Black Panthers getting together for a party. Jews and Muslims. No, not so much. But this should make our hearts sore. God and sinners reconciled. There is a hope in a world where there is largely no hope. There is no political hope right now. Beto O'Rourke is not our political hope. Hollywood's going to continue to churn out soul-squelching nightmares. And the universities are going to posit any solution, not God. But unto you this day is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And for the saint... Our hearts should be moved to follow hard after him and live the life that our master and commander desires of us. But to the unbeliever, there's some who are going to scoff still. They'll turn away. But some unbelievers are going to feel the cement weight down their shoes and they're going to ask, but why How come? What about? Today is the day of salvation. There is no end to questions. Questions aren't bad. But you know what's going to follow a question and an answer? Another question. There is no end of questions. There are great answers. There are great biblical answers for the unbeliever. But at some point, that unbeliever's got to make a choice. Walk out the door and follow your friends or bow the knee to the living God. To bow the knee before the living God is to find eternal life in your humiliation. To repent of your sin and find them washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ who reconciles all things to himself. Born to die upon Calvary. Glory to the newborn king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Oh, what, what a word Paul has given us. Oh, that this Christmas season we would oh, delight in it. That we would be changed by it. That we would become more and more like our Lord and Savior. Father, let us find our nourishment in Christ our head. Let us find our purpose. Let us find 
our solace. Let us find the strength to go on. Let us find the power to turn from our sin, which has so easily entangled us, to turn away from our sin, to reject it. Not in our own strength, but in in the Spirit, in the power of Christ. Oh, that you would be glorified and honored in your people. Father, if there be any here who do not know you, move in their heart even today. That they would put aside all questions. That they would know and understand who you are. And that they would take hold of the free gift of life offered by you in Christ. Blessed be your name. In Jesus' name, amen.